Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, truly the only sustainable show on the web. That's right. This is the only show on the entire World Wide Web in which no electrons are harmed, damaged, or destroyed during the production of this show. And that makes the show unique. You can take a deep emotional, psychic, and moral pleasure in knowing that as you listen to this show, you are doing something ethical. You are contributing to the preservation of electrons in a time when people have become cruel and callous towards the idea of sustainability. And talking of cruel and callous, uh, as a public service, in order to ease the minds of so many of you, so many of you deeply perturbed by the obvious rapidly rising ocean levels as a result of climate change, global warming, and the inevitable apocalypse on its way. As a public service, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show is offering to make an all-cash buyout of your oceanfront property. You understand that its value is only going to continue declining. As more and more people begin to understand the inevitability of human-impacted global warming, and as soon as people realize the rising ocean levels are going to flood out the first few maybe miles of land closest to the water, well, somebody has to do something about it, and your rabbi is stepping into the breach. And so this offer, this offer stands until the end of January. That's it. But between now and the end of January, if you contact us, and uh, you know where the website is, I'll give it to you again a little later, but you contact us, and you will. all you've got to do is give us the address of your property, and you will receive an all-cash offer. Now, admittedly, it's not going to be anywhere near what your property was worth five or ten years ago, before the urgency of climate change became apparent to everybody. But now that everybody knows, this may be your best and quickest way out of really troublesome real estate. Who knows what liability issues the government will see fit to impose upon you. And so if you own waterfront estate in the following states, I'm going to tell you where you have to live in order for this to work, for this to apply. Okay, it does not include the Great Lake states, okay? Uh, we are not buying your waterfront property in, in Michigan and in Wisconsin and in uh, Illinois. No, that is not happening at all. I'm really sorry, but that cannot happen. Uh, we are also not buying your real estate in Alaska or Hawaii. 
and I know that's rough on you folks living near the near the coast in Alaska and Hawaii, but um, for uh, everybody else, that means you folks in Alabama, you folks in California, um, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, especially Florida, because Florida is low lying. East and west coasts of of, of Florida. Uh, all you do is contact us and offload your troublesome, problematic, doomed real estate uh, for cash. Yeah, folks in Georgia, don't hesitate. You're also doomed. Um, uh, Louisiana. Yeah, Louisiana, yes. Maine and Maryland. Absolutely. Massachusetts, don't hesitate. Just give us a call. Uh, New Hampshire, of course. New Jersey, New York, uh, North Carolina. Please don't hesitate. Give us a call. Uh, Oregon, Pennsylvania. Uh, we're not buying land in Puerto Rico, uh, but we will in Rhode Island and South Carolina, of course, and Texas. Yeah, I mean, just think of all that uh, that low-lying land, right near near uh, near Houston. Um, j- just think. I mean, you you know, you may own maybe you own a hotel. We'll buy that as well. Not a problem. We will make you an all-cash offer in all those places. Um, we're not buying your land in the U.S. Virgin Islands, um, but we are in Virginia, Washington. Uh, but sorry, folks, in Wisconsin, no, that's a Great Lake state. So uh, I've given you all the states that are on the ocean, uh, excluding Hawaii and Alaska, but all the others are absolutely valid. Why hang on to this problematic real estate? The situation, as you know, is only getting worse. And so really as a public service, in order to provide peace of mind for the listeners of this show, we will make you an all cash offer for your doomed waterfront real estate. It's not going to be a high offer, but you will be well advised to grab it while the grabbing is good. Because as you know, if we repeat this offer in a year's time, it'll probably be for even half of what we're offering now. It's only going one way. So realizing, as I think every wise, discerning listener of this show does, realizing the inevitability of the rise of sea level because of the melting of the polar ice caps, uh, pretty clear that this could be the best offer you're going to get all day. So we'll give you uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the website again. But right now, all I can do is, having made that offer, I can welcome you to the show and remind you that I, your rabbi, am dedicated to revealing how the world really works. And one way the world really works is that confidence is really important. Confidence is very important to a man hoping to court a woman. A man hoping to find a wife, will find his ability enormously enhanced if he is able to exude a confidence. 
having married a wife, a man will find the ability to be confident and come across as confident, an enormous asset as a husband. Apart from anything else, it provides his wife with a very welcome sense of security, because that's what being around confident people does. That's one of the reasons that uh, when our uh, man becomes, having found a wife and become a husband, then becomes a father, well, then confidence is really, really important while you're raising children, really important uh, for a father to be able to radiate a complete sense of confidence. That's fantastically important. Uh, how about uh, for leadership in general, leadership in the military? Leadership anytime men wear uniforms. A sense of confidence has real value. How about uh, in business, in terms of getting a job, succeeding in a job, keeping a job, building a business, uh, hiring employees, keeping employees, building business relationships, a sense of confidence is hugely important. Friendships, yeah, there as well. You know, we, we like being around confident people. We have words for people who are not confident. They're needy, or they're insecure, or they have a lot of insecurities, or they have issues. But confidence is a hugely important thing. It's an attribute that is a great asset in almost all areas of life. Now, I don't have to tell you, I'm sure, that confidence has nothing whatsoever to do with arrogance or bravado or an overdeveloped ego or uh, ob obnoxious and obtrusive heroics. Um, those are, are, do not display confidence. All they do is camouflage insecurity or try to camouflage insecurity. Uh, confidence is self-assurance. Uh, a sense that um, you can do whatever needs to be done. Um, if you're confident, you're not trying to prove anything to, to anyone else or even to yourself. Um, all you do is you radiate an attitude of, I can handle this. I can deal with this. It's self-assurance. That's what it is. And uh, it is very, very valuable. And so it's definitely something we should talk about. I will say this, that there are two kinds of people, sexists and fools, uh, provided a sexist is someone who is of the opinion that the male-female distinction, that the male-female difference is the most fundamental distinction in all of creation, right up there matched only by the difference between light and darkness and the difference between good and evil. That's how important the difference is between male and female. And sexists, sexists, is that the, yeah, a sexist. Sexists get that and fools do not. Now, I'm deliberately using the word sexist because I'm tired of people taking perfectly good English words and turning them 
into insults and, uh, and uh, condemnations and indictments and worse. So when uh, lefty thugs at a university at which I spoke recently protested me all around the campus as sexist, Islamophobe, and free market capitalist, I pleaded guilty to all three. Absolutely. When I got up on the stage, I said, absolutely. If being a sexist means I am very aware of male-female differences and I understand the very real-world implications of that, well, yes, I'm a sexist. Islamophobe? Of course, I'm scared of Islam. I am. Just as as if I was an, a, a car insurance executive, if I, if I owned a car insurance company, I'd be scared of male drivers between the ages of 16 and 24. I would. I'd be scared of them uh, because they could bankrupt my company. So I'd be very, I'd be very careful underwriting those risks. And uh, yes, I am certain that free market capitalism, which really doesn't mean anything more than a transparent and voluntary exchange of goods and services between free people, that has produced more benefits for more human beings than any other economic system in history. And there really is only one other. Now, let's delve for the moment into sexist. If I had a son and a daughter... Right, the little baby boy, little infant girl, and my fairy godmother suddenly appeared. Do fairy godmothers pop out of bottles? No, that's genies, isn't it? I do need to polish up my fairy godmother lore. But my, at any rate, my fairy godmother pops up, and as fairy godmothers typically do, she offered me a gift one gift for each child, and I get to pick which child gets which gift. And I'm listening avidly because I'm, I'm always happy to get gifts for my children. And the fairy godmother says, you have the gift of good looks for one child and strong confidence for the other. Now, my job is to decide I've got to go one way or the other. Either I have to give my daughter good looks and my son confidence, or I have to give my daughter confidence and my son good looks. What am I going to do? Well, I hesitate only for a a second or two while I weigh up my fairy godmother just to see if she'd be open to negotiation. You know, perhaps I can up the ante a little bit. But it quickly becomes apparent that uh, this fairy godmother, like most of them, is not about to make any modifications to her offer, and uh, she stands very firmly on it. It is now my job to decide who gets the the confidence, my son or my daughter, who gets the good looks, my son or my daughter. And... um, Let me leave you to think about that for just a moment while I apologize for a mistake last week. 
Now, um, being only human, I do make mistakes, to be honest, more than I'm happy about. Too many. Regrets are plenty. But many mistakes are fairly easily corrected, and happily, this one falls into that category. Last week, the last show was called Fearing Family Holiday Get-Togethers, Timeless Truths for Every Person in Every Place and Every Period. And so um, I was uh, talking about uh, what happens when families get together and when uh, uh, it's a holiday and your, uh, your child is coming home from college for the holidays uh, I'm sorry they're there in the first place because of what's happening to them in college, but unless unless they're taking um, subjects that don't change at all. In other words, physics, there are advances in physics, but there are no contradictions. In other words, uh, the physics, for the most part, other than cutting-edge stuff, but the physics that, uh, that uh, my grandfather was taught is pretty much the same physics that my my son is taught. It's the same thing. Uh, mathematics, true as well. Biology, yeah, there are advances, no question about it, but you're not going to walk into the biology class and all of a sudden hear that um, facts that you believed up until a year ago are now completely untrue. Uh, it's very rare for a biology class in a university to insist that male and female differences are not real because biologists understand that every single cell of your body <laughs> reveals whether you are either male or female. Uh, it just does. But uh, in other parts, in the, in the social sciences and in the liberal arts, okay, that's where you're going to hear uh, more of those kinds of things. But your child comes home from college in, uh, in a science, technology, engineering, mathematics field and um, is, is, is uh, bringing his or her live-in friend, boy or girlfriend, home. And I spoke about uh, the question of um, the biblical rule of honoring father and mother. Now, if you haven't heard it, I'm going to recommend that you do go back and hear it, even though there was a mistake, which I'm about to correct. But the reason I think it's worth hearing is that um, respecting, honoring our parents is counterintuitive. You do not grow up just honoring your father and mother. In other words, you might remember, I hope you don't, because it was a disgusting and unbelievably stupid film of years and years and years back called Blue Lagoon. And in, in Blue Lagoon, the whole idea is it's basically the French philosopher Rousseau's naked savage, noble savage idea. Uh, the idea being that if you just kept civilization away from people, we'd all evolve into these noble, wonderful, natural creatures. It, it's really, it's, it's one of the most devastatingly destructive philosophies because socialism and much else uh, rests upon that. And at the same time, it is also the most unbelievably inane and uh, foolish <clears throat> philosophy. But at any rate, uh, Blue Lagoon has a, a young boy and a young girl stuck on a desert island. And let's just assume for the moment that they don't get rescued and they grow up. Can we assume that they will discover 
um, procreation? Will they discover uh, each other's potential to bring one another joy? Yes, of course. I don't think there's any question about that. And uh, that means that inevitably and eventually there'll be little people on the island. And now the question is, in that circumstance where the uh, the mother and father raising them are not teaching them anything at all because they themselves don't know anything at all, this is pure, unadulterated nature. This is just what would happen if people followed the Rousseau dream got rid of Western civilization, and a boy and a girl grow up on the island absolutely incommunicado, isolated from every cultural and religious belief, and then they have children of their own. Will those children grow up honoring their fathers and mothers? Absolutely not, and unless for some bizarre reason the parents insist on it. There's no reason why they would, because the truth is that it's kind of a hard thing to do. Um, every parent recognizes, everyone who is going to be a parent uh, needs to be aware of this. And that is that you feel weird requesting or requiring that your children honor you. It's one of the reasons that fathers and mothers working together work so well, because mothers can insist that children honor fathers, and fathers can insist that their children honor his wife, their mother. And that way you feel less of a buffoon than when you ask your children to honor you. But in the worst case scenario, let's imagine you're a single parent, you're doing it by yourself. You would be doing them a huge disservice if you were not to insist that as part of your child rearing rules, your children have to honor you. But it doesn't come naturally. Parents would not naturally request it. And children certainly wouldn't naturally deliver it because children naturally grow up with a sense of uh, condescension towards their parents. Uh, if your children have ever rolled their eyes at you and said, whatever, then you know what I'm talking about. And it requires, uh, it's, it's obviously necessary for children to acquire this, very necessary, honoring parents and very necessary for, without the Bible, they wouldn't exist. And one of the reasons that Bible cultures have succeeded is because of one of the Ten Commandments that insists, honor your father and mother. I also explained last week that uh, this is not a request to love your father and mother. It's not even a request to like your father and, mo and, father and mother. Uh, all the commandment says is to honor them. And there's some very specifics as to what that means. But um, here was the mistake I made. I repeatedly, during last week's show, <laughs> referred to honoring father and mother as the fourth commandment. Uh, just happened. I, I have absolutely no explanation for it because I actually do know that uh, the fourth commandment is the Sabbath day, what we call the Shabbat. And it is, in fact, the fifth commandment that is the commandment about honoring father and mother. And, and here's the funny thing. Uh, we only got, we only received about 60-something uh, um, corrections. So that means thousands and thousands and thousands of you either didn't catch it and were yourselves not too sure which number come on, or else you just knew 
but you uh, took it as a slip of the tongue and didn't think it was worth writing in to correct me. But for all the people, and quite a few people, but certainly only a tiny proportion of our listenership, only a little more than 60 people let me know that I gave the wrong commandment. It is actually commandment number five and not commandment number four. I also want to uh, mention that the resource which is available, and you can download it, uh, but it is really a wonderful resource. It's eight hours of teaching. Uh, It's a wonderful resource if you have any interest whatsoever in viewing the Bible as much, much more than the accumulated legends of long-forgotten people and anachronistic anecdotes, if you see it or are interested in seeing the Bible, not as an archaic history book or as a comic collection of cliches that have been adopted into many languages, no. If you want to see the Bible in the way it was actually intended, if you want to see the Bible as a glimpse into the mind of God, if you want to see the Bible as God's manufacturer's instruction manual for safe operation of human society, uh, then you would like to listen to these four programs that are part of the Genesis Journeys set. Uh, one of them is Madam, I'm Adam, Marriage Secrets from Eden. One of them is um, uh, The Tower of Power, uh, Secrets of um, uh, the secrets of Babel, the Tower of Babel, and which what this one shows is for people interested in politics. In case you think that uh, politics was uh, that socialism was invented by Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom last year, or you think that socialism was invented by Bernie Sanders in the United States of America four years ago, you might be interested to know that uh, God warns about socialism in the Tower of Babel. That is what those nine verses in chapter 11 of Genesis are all about. There is also um, a a program about uh, the gathering storm. These are life lessons from the story of Noah. If you've wondered whether things like abortion Uh, just happened recently, and that this was never a part of human society till recently. Or if you think that the urge towards legalizing homosexual marriage is something new that nobody ever thought of, then you'll be very interested in knowing a little bit more about the flood and exactly what was going on over there. And then the final section of the set of four two-hour programs, it's an audio program with study guides, um, is uh, decoding the the clash of destiny, decoding the secrets of Israel and Islam. Uh, If you are trying to understand why it is that a few million Jews who live a hard life sacrificing a great deal and uh, very often living in frighteningly insecure circumstances, simply do not pack up, get out of Israel, and move to New Jersey or the south of France 
or uh, I mean, they could all comfortably fit into Devon and Cornwall in the United Kingdom. Uh, they could all fit into the North Island of New Zealand. Why don't they just move? I mean, many countries would be very happy, although they'd be dubious about welcoming five million Jews. But at the same time, they'd love to have an end to the Middle East crisis. So um, why don't these Jews leave and go live somewhere more comfortable and safer? Or if you've wondered, why is it that uh, the Arabs around Israel, a hundred million Arabs around Israel, do not accept the huge payoff that would accompany making peace and acknowledging Israel's right to existence. If you really wanted to get a deeper glimpse into why that is not an option for a Muslim, well, then you'd want to be able to get a bit of a sense of what's really going on between Israel and Islam, and uh, that would be the fourth one of these programs. So, there they are at rabbidaniellappin.com. Got it? rabbidaniellappin.com, which, by the way, is also where you go um, to send me an email telling me, hey, we would like to sell you our waterfront real estate, and we will be happy to accept about 10% of the value it had five years ago. Um, because we realize that in accepting 10% of its value today, we are doing ourselves a huge favor because in a year's time, you probably will only offer us 1%. So go to rabbidaniellappin.com and shoot me the address of your, uh, your property and uh, expect an offer by uh, return mail. You'll also be able to go to the store and explore the Genesis Journeys set. And it is made up of four audio programs that I've just told you about. You can either have it mailed to you, or you can download it. All of that is ready and available. Now, um, I am recording this show, as it happens, between Christmas and New Year. And you'd say, well, that... uh, Why do I mention that? Well, the year doesn't matter. It's irrelevant what year it is. But uh, why I mention that is because some of you may not be aware that the song, right? And it's an old song called The Twelve Days of Christmas. And many of you will think that the 12 days of Christmas means the 12 days leading up to Christmas. However, The truth is that the 12 days of Christmas actually refer to the period that starts with Christmas and goes all the way up to January the 6th, when um, uh, it's Epiphany and when the three kings from the East brought gifts. Now, uh, you probably are surprised to be hearing this from your rabbi. And you'd be right to be surprised, and you'd be right to be skeptical, because having told you that, I'm afraid I have utterly exhausted my knowledge on that period between Christmas and Epiphany, those 12 days. But since I am preparing this show during what is known as the 12 days of Christmas, I couldn't help thinking about 
the uh, famous Christmas song, right? The Twelve Days of Christmas. On the first day of Christmas, my true love sent to me a partridge in a pear tree. On the second day of Christmas, my true love sent to me two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. On the third day of Christmas, my true love sent to me three French hens, two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. And the song continues, adding four calling birds, five golden rings, uh, so on and so forth, uh, all the way up to the twelfth day when twelve drummers uh, add to the general cacophony of birds, pipers and lords leaping all over the place. Now, why why am I telling you this? Because I was intrigued in thinking about it. I thought, gee, I wonder if there is a quick and easy way to calculate the total number of gifts. So, um, you know, so partridges, partridge on a, in a pear tree, well, that shows up every day. So there'd be 12 of those. Now, the next, second day of Christmas, my true love sent to me two turtle doves. So, um, but that didn't start on the first day, so that leaves only 11 days, because the third day is going to include two turtle doves plus three French hens. So the total number of partridges is 12. The total number of doves, because there are two of them, remember, two of them for 11 days is 22. And now hens, well, it's three French hens, but it's only for 10 more days. And so that would be 30 hens. So I thought, do I really have to go through all of this? Or is there a shorter way in, in which we can calculate this a little bit more efficiently? And, um, and in fact, if we can find the formula for that, we could even keep giving, up, giving gifts up to 50 days or something like that, because uh, we could just use the same formula. Uh, so I thought you might want to think about that and uh, figure out what it is. What is the total number? I found the answer quite interesting. Uh, not, I mean, the answer of how to do it is straightforward, but the actual answer of how many gifts, I wondered whether that was deliberate and calculated and thought out. The total number of gifts, well, I'll have to, I'll have to tell you about that as well. But um, first of all, let us go back to the question of whether or not, or how I, how I divide my fairy godmother's gifts. She says, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, I give you the gift of confidence, and I give you the gift of great good looks. One you have to give to your son, and one you have to give to your daughter. The choice is yours. Well, I am sure that like you, I would hesitate for about a millisecond, if that. I would know exactly how I'm going to give these gifts. Absolutely. How am I going to give them? I'm going to give my daughter beauty, good looks, and I'm going to give my son confidence. You say, why? Why, why, why are you going to do that? Like, you know, maybe it would be best to toss a coin, however it comes out. You know, give it by chance, because they're both equally valuable to both. No, they're not. The truth is that exceptional good looks on a man are, um, or is, uh, it's actually not a huge asset. You know, it, it, it would be nice to be good looking, right? I, I, I certainly can see that. It would be nice to be good looking. 
Um, that way I would do this show on video, not just audio, and give you two pleasures, not just listening to me, but watching me as well. But uh, And I see that. But in general, really, really good-looking men, um, they cause a little bit of unease. It's almost as if the rest of us say, can somebody that good-looking really be smart? Can somebody that good-looking really be accomplished? And I, I realize that not everyone is going to agree with me on this, obviously, but I know that enough of you do because I've had these conversations when I speak in churches, right? I speak to large groups of people in churches, and I invite uh, opportunities to talk with smaller groups afterwards, and I very often uh, present a hypothesis such as this for people to discuss. And one person, when I recently presented this in a church in Virginia, somebody came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I changed doctors. When I moved to the town in which I live, uh, I got a number of recommendations and I picked one. I went to see a doctor and I, I, I stayed with him for a few months and I left. You know what? He's just too good looking. And I just, you know, I, I've got to think things came too easy to him. <laughs> that was one person's take. But um, the fact is that when we measure men, we are usually looking for accomplishment. When we measure men, we're looking to see what they have achieved, not what they look like. And when we look at women, well, it is sexist, I know. I'm certainly interested if a woman is married, I'm interested in if, she, if she's raising a family or if she has, these are very, I mean, huge accomplishments, obviously, but the looks are more important there. My son, I, I'm going to work as hard as I can to make sure he grows up to be an accomplished man. My daughter, I, obviously, I want her to be accomplished as well, but not at the risk of being a wife and mother. Because I believe that's where her deepest sense of happiness, fulfillment, and joy will come from. And so if making her accomplished means that she is going to postpone marriage until she is 28 years old, in that case, I will discourage it because I would like to see her married sooner rather than later, giving her more of her life to be launched, to live more of her life in the fulfilling circumstances of building a family. So when it comes to my baby, my young baby daughter, I will pick beauty for her and I will pick confidence for my son because that will be more useful to him than good looks. And beauty will be, and yes, I'm going to say it, and heaven help me. You know, those of you who wish me ill will think badly of me for saying this. Those of you who wish me well will give me the benefit of the doubt and give me some credit and understand what it is that I'm really saying. But uh, I'm saying, yes, I wish I will take the gift of confidence for my son because that will be something he will get most benefit from. 
and I will give the gift of beauty to my daughter, because that will stand her in best stead. That will be something fantastically valuable to her. Uh, a, a woman with beauty, well, that is an asset, and that is a, a huge and wonderful advantage. Um, so, what about um, confidence? You know the, the 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 good news and the bad news. Would you which do you want first? The bad news is that there is no fairy godmother. She's not coming to give your son confidence. So, how do you get confidence? Well, that's the good news. There are ways to either give your son confidence, and and by the way, let me just give you of the obvious caveat. Under no circumstances am I suggesting that girls who are needy and insecure and that that's a good thing not at all i'm not saying that at all but i'm saying if i have to choose among those gifts then uh, beauty is of no great value to my son confidence is to my daughter beauty is of great value confidence much less so Um, now how do we get confidence well one place right off the bat is that you get it from your father. Fathers, you have the ability to raise boys with a sense of confidence, and it's enormously valuable. They become natural leaders that way. They find it much easier to find women, wives, not going to say girlfriends because no happy warrior listening to the show is looking for a girlfriend but you get the idea getting it from your father is fantastically valuable um easiest best way to to get a sense of confidence other places that we get confidence from well uh, sometimes nature just endows people with physical prowess and competence and so if, if you're a boy growing up and you're just, you know, you're, you're going to a school where sports is valued and you just happen to be really, really good. You're talented as, a, as an athlete and as a sportsman. You'll get a lot of confidence from that. And if, uh, if you are good, you know, if you find your schoolwork coming easily to you, you're basically a, a star at your school. You do get confidence. Now, one has to be very careful that that doesn't turn into a blown up ego. Uh, obviously, particularly because later on, you're going to run into a whole lot of other people who are just as athletic as you, just as good as sports as you, and just as competent as you, and people who are not properly grounded in this area, at that point, descend into a, a state of misery and sadness. So, no, we're not, uh, we're not talking about that kind of thing. But um, uh, for the rest of us, Well, um, I'm going to tell you, for the rest of us, people, we're not, um, you know, for one reason or another, our our fathers did not have the sort of relationships with us that gave us confidence. And, uh, And we do not happen to be superb athletes, and we didn't just grow up having a sense of, of achievement and having a, a, a deep assurance that we can just handle everything that comes at us. Uh, what about 
the rest of us who are just sort of more normal. Well, more average, I should say. I like to make a distinction between normal and average, right? Um, average is, you know, most of us don't have a lot of confidence. We're just average. Normal, normal is everybody has, normal is to have confidence. That's what should be normal, should be. That's what should be normal. But how do we get it? And so I now want to devote this part of the show to giving you the technologies, the spiritual strategies for achieving confidence. Hugely important, hugely valuable, and, uh, and it's, it's a value for women as well as for men, but it's of huge and tremendous value for men. That's what I want to talk about, and that's what I want to explain to you right now. I think that uh, everybody fully understands uh, certain equations that revolve around confidence. For example, um, if I were to say to you, confident men are successful, or if I were to say confidence helps to breed success, then that equation can also be read backwards, success breeds confidence. So that's very important, right? Like any true equation, uh, you can take an H molecule and an H molecule, or in this case atom, and add it to uh, an oxygen um, atom, and those three atoms will turn into a drop of water, a molecule of water. In other words, H plus H plus O equals H2O. But we can also take a molecule of water and using an electrical current, we can break it down into its constituent parts of hydrogen and oxygen. Equations that are true read forwards and backwards. Confidence breeds success? Absolutely. Uh, if you have confidence, you know, I mean, anybody who knows sports and athletics knows the important role that confidence plays going into a game. Uh, but it's true in, in everything. It's, uh, you know, walking up to a woman at a church social and starting to talk to her for the first time, you find her attractive and you've never, you've never seen her before. Uh, if you have confidence, that's easier to do. And what's more, if you do it in a confident way, she's more likely to smile and talk with you. I mean, everybody knows that. Confidence breeds success. But what is equally important to understand is that success breeds confidence. That's right. Just as much. Very important to understand that. And, um, and it's, it's, it goes way beyond the dating area or the male-female area. Um, a confident man is a man who believes in himself, and that's an attitude that does not go unnoticed. Uh, it's, it's important career-wise, and, um, and again, if, you know, it's, it's, it's perfectly understandable that whether it's in business or whether it's in family life, uh, we, tend, we tend to gravitate towards people who radiate confidence. And so confidence is what I would think of as a normal condition. And if we, do, if we lack confidence, then we should take the necessary spiritual steps to repair. And I say spiritual because it is a spiritual attribute. There is no instrument in any laboratory in the world that can measure your level of confidence. Um, confidence, uh, I just want to add a, another couple of things. One of the ways that uh, you r reveal confidence is by 
uh, being very self-controlled and self-disciplined. That's part of being confident. It's really, really important. It's also a way to enhance confidence is by building up self-control and self-discipline. Um, confidence brings strength, obviously. It communicates strength and, and, and a sense of um, competence and capability. It also radiates reliability. And so when you, again, equations reading forwards and backwards, when I encounter somebody who just puts out such a confident vibe, I intuitively think of him as being a reliable person. He's going to do what he says. And so uh, conversely, reading the equation in the other direction, if you are seeking confidence, then keeping your word brings you closer to that level of confidence. Um, here's another very big attribute, something that women find very attractive, but I think it's good in almost all human interactions, and that is uh, confident people do not beat around the bush. Confident people communicate directly and transparently and openly, and, and that's a stress reducer. Right? Do you know what it's like when uh, somebody comes up to you, it can be at work, and they start beating around, look, um, I've been looking for an opportunity to have a talk with you. I've just felt for a long time we need to have a conversation. Now, you know we've known each other for quite a long You know, you, you, you want to start tearing your hair out. If he carries on for much longer, you'll tear his hair out. Uh, it's much more comfortable to have a direct conversation with somebody. But that takes confidence. And so whether whether you are a man talking to a woman or a man talking to another man, Radiating confidence is achieved very often by being able to speak forthrightly, transparently, openly, and directly. I don't mean rude. I don't mean insensitive, but no beating around the bush. Those are very, very basic principles. Now, uh, spiritual strategy, and this, this is most important and perhaps the, the part that uh, you need to listen to more than once, maybe. And that is that um, if, all right, here's an important example. If you spend um, three months in space, and, you know, what I'm speaking about is not speculation. There's been enough uh, real-life space exploration since uh, the 1960s, that we, we have a pretty good idea of the accuracy of what I'm about to tell you. And that is that when if you've been in a zero-gravity environment for three months and you come back to Earth, you're going to find it very hard to stand up straight. You're going you're gonna to want to just fall down onto a bed or into a chair because your muscles have atrophied to a certain extent. They've become weakened by lack of exercise. This is really, really important. Um, if you have been alone in solitary confinement, I believe that to be a, a terrible form of torture, and I consider it to be a deep and profound evil, that uh, there are actually people at this stage of history, there are criminals, and I don't care what they did, but there are criminals in jail in solitary confinement. Uh, I'm not going to miss 
the opportunity of just saying how thoroughly evil I think solitary confinement is. But uh, again, somebody who's been in solitary confinement for a, a period of time, several months or longer, and in many cases it's been longer, that person comes out and it's hard for him to communicate. And, you know, he gets back to his family and, and everyone says, you've changed. You know, you, you're, you're sort of withdrawn. You don't talk. It's not that he doesn't want to talk. His talking ability, I don't want to say muscles here because I'm not talking physically. I'm not speaking about the lips and the muscles and the tongue. Uh, I'm speaking about um, the spiritual muscles of communication, the part of our personalities that connects easily with other people. That aspect has been atrophied and the, the the point is now at which he has to be helped he's got to be transitioned back he's got to be given exercises speech therapy is is very often recommended in situations like this in other words a muscle that doesn't get used atrophies and it becomes less capable of doing its job well let me tell you about confidence. Confidence is just another word for faith. That's right, faith. You know, when somebody says, I'm confident I can do this, there's no evidence. He has faith he can do it. You see, the words are very similar. Confidence, if there was proof, you wouldn't need confidence, right? Um, I want you to be confident that the car turning the corner is red. I don't need to be confident about it. I can see it. It is red. I want you to be confident that if you work really hard for the next few years, you will be able to buy a Corvette in five years' time if you want one. Now, that is a question of faith. You're telling me that if I keep this program I'm on, keep doing what I'm doing, I'll be able to buy a Corvette in five years. Okay, fine. I have confidence that that's true. But that's just another way of saying I have faith that that's true. In this case, I have faith in you as my coach. You're telling me that this works, I should do it and keep it up and I'm doing okay, I'm on track. Okay, I have confidence in you and I have faith that it will happen. And so confidence and faith are very similar. And therefore... Having confidence boils down to being able to have faith. But wait a second. If you are a secularized person, if you were raised without any religious faith, then your faith muscle has become atrophied. That's right. It's the same muscle. Whether you have faith that you'll be able to afford a Corvette or whether you have faith that you and the woman you are marrying are going to be able to have a long and happy life building a successful family together. All of these things are faith. And radiating that faith marks you as a confident person. If you are somebody who was raised without faith in God, well then your faith muscle has become atrophied and it is very difficult for you to become a truly confident person. Now, you might become a blusterer and a boaster. You might have an overdeveloped ego. You might have all ways of compensating for insecurity, but you're not confident. It is very, very difficult 
to have confidence if your faith muscle has atrophied. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. And so um, I, I was fascinated to discover, and this, this is by no means the only example, but it's just one that I like. I was fascinated to discover that um, when Usain Bolt, Usain Bolt is a six foot five um, sprinter from Jamaica, and uh, I watched him break the record for the 100 meter run sprint at the Olympics in London in 2012. And um, it was just, by the way, if, if if you're interested, I mean, if you have any interest at all in, in just feats of superb human athletic achievement, um, catch the video of Usain Bolt winning the 100 meters in London in 2012. Well, one of the things you'll also see is that he uh, reveals his faith. And sure enough, um, Usain Bolt is a religious, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christian. That's right, he is. And he makes no secret about it. Uh, if you if you look at his uh, his Twitter feed, right, it's it's just full of of religious reflection and religious conviction, and he he, he speaks about it. He he makes uh, he he reveals it on the athletic field, and then he went ahead and and did the two hundred meters in less than twenty seconds. <laughs> it's amazing, and then four years later. Four years later, and he's already close to 30, which is he's getting there for a, a runner. Um, two years later, in Rio de Janeiro, he again knocks off the 100-meter race in well under 10 seconds, like he did in London. I, I'm not sure it was the same time. Might might have not been quite, but it's not important. The And then he does the 200-meter again. So he's, um, he's, he's a remarkable guy to, to watch run. But... If you do watch him run, you'll probably also see that he's a religious guy. He'll either cross himself or at the end of the run, he points skyward. And he says, this is all due to God. Without God, none of this would have happened. Um, the man has faith. And having faith means it's a lot easier for him to have confidence in his victory. And if he has confidence in his victory, it's much easier for him to win. Confidence breeds success. How do you get confident? Well, you've got to have faith. Now, if you have faith in God, you're way ahead of the game because your faith muscle has had ample exercise. And so when you now begin to tell yourself, I now have to have faith, not just in God, but I now have to have faith that I am going to be able to achieve my sales target this month. And I have to have faith that um, the uh, woman to whom I'm engaged and I are going to have a wonderful life together. I, there's no evidence of that, but we're not talking evidence. We're talking about something far more powerful. We're talking about faith. And so build your faith in God and you'll have a stronger faith muscle ready to deploy in all the other areas where you need faith or what we call confidence build it. Um, passivity destroys confidence. Sitting around thinking about stuff, sitting around watching television, a destroyer of confidence. Be a doer because every little victory, every little thing you do uh, helps to amplify the confidence you feel and 
boosts you maybe only an inch or two, but it's an inch or two above where you were before. And so maybe you did nothing more than uh, control your diet or exercise or or kept your word on something you promised a co-worker, even though it turned out to be incredibly uncomfortable and inconvenient. Whatever it is, uh, every little action, every little achievement puts you on the next level, gives you a little more confidence, which breeds success for the next thing you embark on. Um, physical health, right? Make sure you're taking care of physical health, exercise, diet, etc., because victories in those areas help to build your confidence. Increase your competence in whatever is your field. I don't know what field you're in, but whatever field you're in, become better and better. Don't be just adequate. Become better and better at whatever field you select, whatever field you have chosen to be in. Enhance your skills in that area. Become better at it. Success breeds confidence, and confidence breeds success. Now, uh, faith, it's crucially important, and it needs to be very well modulated. What I mean by that is that um, if somebody has too much faith, if there is such a thing, then he sometimes falls into the trap of saying, I don't have to do anything, God will provide and he becomes passive in that sense. So I would even explain that that's not true faith. Any faith that produces a passivity instead of something that stimulates you to achievement, to action, to doing something, it's probably not faith. And uh, too little faith, and I'm here addressing myself to people who were not raised and educated with faith in God and who haven't achieved it on their own yet, um, you are uh, taking too heavy a burden on your shoulders. Having no faith means it's exhausting. You have to carry responsibility for absolutely everything. And that's probably why you don't hear people talking about acts of God anymore so much. But just think about it. There are so many parts of my life that I say to myself, you know what, I've done my best, it's up to God. Right? If God wants this to happen, it'll happen. But I, there's no point in worrying about it. And you know what? I don't. Because faith takes some of the weight off my shoulders. And so having too little faith can be exhausting and grueling and rough. You just got to carry responsibility for everything. And having faith of the wrong kind that makes you say, oh, I don't have to do anything. God will take care of everything. Well, uh, I don't even have to tell happy warriors how destructive and uh, unhelpful that is. So we're not going to worry about that. But uh, that then gives you a little bit of an overview, I think, of confidence and how important it is and how it goes hand in hand with faith and, yes, religious faith as well. And that means we're coming close to the end of the show. But I just have to... Uh, repeat that those of you who uh, have waterfront property in the states I mentioned earlier and you would like to have 
to have me purchase them for a cash offer, admittedly at about 10% of the last appraisal you had. But I know you'll be grateful because as the water levels rise, as the climate increases, temperatures go up and polar ice caps melt, uh, your property is only going to drop in value even more. So get what you can while the getting is good and go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and shoot me an email and uh, just tell me the address of your property and we'll send you an offer by return mail. If you don't want to sell, sell or you don't own any waterfront property in the states I mentioned, um, Louisiana, particularly you folks, you know, waste no time. And um, if you don't want to do that, well, you'd still want to go to the website because you'll be able to go to the store and read up about the product on special offer for listeners to this show today, and that is the Genesis Journeys set. Four two-hour audio programs with four study guides. You can either download it or you can um, get it mailed to you if you are in countries to which we mail. So, all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. And um, with, you know, that concern about wanting to sell your waterfront property, which I not only understand, but as a public service, I am willing to actually remove your stress and all that worry you have about how you're going to be able to sell that waterfront property. Um, Look, uh, the point I'm making, obviously, is that um, nobody really believes it. All the people who are making the claim about uh, climate change and rise, they don't actually believe it because surely some of them own waterfront property and none of them are trying to sell. So when I say trying to sell, it's not that I know everybody. It's just that I can see prices of waterfront property are going up, not going down. So that means nobody's really believing this at all. And yet that hasn't stopped people claiming it. So much so that there are some foolish people uh, who, who even put a time frame on it. All we have is 12 years and we're all going to be flooded out of New York and Miami and uh, Sarasota and uh, Charlotte. and Yeah, all gone. They don't believe it themselves. And here's something else they say. And, and here it's, um, it's, it's like really interesting. In other words, real evidence that they don't mean it at all. Um, this is a point made by uh, a guy called Daniel Turner, who um, is with Power of the Future. Very interesting guy. He made an excellent point, and here it is. Um, there is a phrase that I know you've heard used in the context of climate change. I've heard it used in Europe. I've heard it used in the United States. I've heard it used in Canada. And that is, climate change is an existential crisis. It's an existential, they like using that word existential. That means it threatens our existence. Climate change is an existential threat. It threatens our existence. So they don't use that, by the way, about real existential threats like uh, Islamic terrorism or uh, the dangers of a nuclear Iran or the ongoing mess in Afghanistan. No, you know what's an existential threat? Climate change, rising sea levels, that's an existential... Do you know what's causing it? People are causing it. How? Well, by burning carbon, right? By, by using coal, by using gasoline. And it's existential. Uh, in the state of New York, 
has an unbelievably foolish congresswoman called Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And listen to her. This is what she said. This is our World War Two. That's what she says. And um, the one of the candidates uh, for the Democratic uh, nomination, Mayor Pete, he said, the climate issue is as serious as the mobilization of millions of American boys across Europe and the Pacific for World War Two. So he and this woman both compare because World War Two was an existential threat, right? Adolf Hitler was an existential threat. That is why America sent General George Patton over to Europe to wipe out Hitler. That's why General Eisenhower went to Europe to invade Normandy and wipe out Hitler. Hitler was an existential threat. Nazi Germany was an existential threat. It was. The Soviet Union was an existential threat. And Ronald Reagan managed to subdue it without having to fire a shot. But nobody challenged what he wanted. Well, some people did. But basically, people understood that by creating the strategic um, the strategic uh, initiative, high, the high frontier, the Star Wars, by creating a means of de- of defense against uh, against uh, nuclear attack by the Soviet Union, he got the Soviet Union into a race they couldn't win, and everyone understood this was an existential threat. And when you use the word existential threat, it's a very serious word, and so. Let's let's say that these, for the moment, let's say that all these people who use that phrase, uh, like um, Greta Thunberg, let's say that they actually mean it, okay? Um, every time America has faced an existential threat, we launched a fight to get rid of that threat. When Muslim extremists... Uh, brought existential danger to our nation on 9-11-2001, we took the fight to them, right? We sent the military overseas to fight them. When there's an existential threat, that's what you do. You go along and fight it. Well, it's hard to sort of fight global warming in the abstract. So who is the biggest polluter? Who puts more carbon dioxide into the air than anyone else and has zero intention of slowing down well who do you think there would be well um how about if i tell you if you hadn't guessed the biggest polluter in the world by far is china china is actually planning now to add new coal-fired power plants the amount they're trying to add now is equivalent to the entire number of nuclear power plants in the European Union. That's true. Um, They are now either in the process of building or in final stages of planning. They uh, are either constructing or about to begin construction of 150 gigawatts of coal-fired plants. And just to give you a... uh, an idea all of the European Union countries that's a lot of countries and if you add up all the power stations the coal-fired power stations that all those countries have that's 149 gigawatts so China is adding to what they've already got 
the same as the total existing uh, fleet of coal-fired power stations. So while the rest of the world has been sort of trying to reduce coal-powered capacity over the past couple of years, China's building so much coal power that it more than offsets any possible decline anywhere else. What is being built in China is single-handedly turning what would be the beginning of the decline of coal into the continued growth of coal. That's what's happening. So um, uh, right now, uh, China has 987 power coal stations in operation, nearly a thousand. They're building 121 new ones. Please listen to those figures. China has 987 coal-fired power stations, and they're building another 121. All of Europe, the entire European Union, has 149 nuclear power stations, and um, they're planning on building how many new ones? None. So there it is. Uh, China absolutely refuses to cap its carbon dioxide emissions. They say we'll look at it again in 2030. But for now, they're not part of the Paris Climate Agreement. So um, they're actually increasing the rate at which they're building nuclear power stations. So all I'm saying is, if we sent the military overseas, actually Daniel uh, um, uh, saying it, uh, Turner, uh, if we sent the military overseas to fight the Nazis because they were an ex existential threat, and we sent the military overseas to fight Muslim extremists because they were an existential threat. Surely we have to send the military to China to fight China because climate change is an existential threat and nobody's doing more to bring about climate change than China, right? I mean, nobody wanted to storm the beaches of Normandy, but they did because it was an ex existential threat. And so surely if they are telling the truth, and this is the phrase they use. Climate change is our World War II. Climate change is, and I mean, people who are otherwise, you would have thought, are otherwise sane politicians, right? And yet they're not. On this one, they're insane. Uh, it's an existential threat. Fine, if it's an existential threat, we take you at your word. Please say you're in favor of sending the military to invade China. I mean, how can you possibly do less for an existential threat? Surely, isn't that what's got to happen? They, 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 the Democratic candidates speak of oil and gas literally with the same language that Churchill used against the Nazis. They really, um, uh, Elizabeth Warren and uh, Bernie Sanders, both have said that on their very first day as president, they will totally ban fracking, any oil drilling development on any federal lands and all offshore drilling. Um, Joe Biden, by the way, from Pennsylvania, right, pretty much of, of an energy state, uh, has said, there will be no place in my administration for fossil fuels. I take it that means that uh, when Biden becomes commander-in-chief, God forbid, if he ever did become president, I presume that he would arrange to have all the Navy ships and aircraft carriers and destroyers powered with sails presumably because they they don't like nuclear and they certainly are going to ban all uh, fossil fuels that means no coal and oil okay so i mean the, here's the choice take these people at their word 
all these Americans and Europeans who climate change is the biggest existential threat of our time. Believe them, or else it's nothing but political blathering. If it is political blathering, ignore them. Ignore any politician who, who, you, who, who talks in this kind of uh, hyperbole. Uh, but if it's true that they are telling the truth, we must prepare for war. Because in that case, climate change really is an existential threat. Got to make up our mind. That's how it goes. But meanwhile, the most reliable and helpful thing we can do is build up our faith. One way we do that is by studying the Bible, uh, seeing that this message to mankind provided by God actually helps us understand what's going on. And the uh, Genesis journey set, which I told you about, made up of four sections. One have a section having to do with uh, marriage from learning from the Garden of Eden. One has uh, the social and political collapse flowing from the flood and Noah. Uh, part, one part talks about Israel and the Muslims, and that is a um, uh, uh, third part. And the fourth part is the Tower of Power understanding the seductive lure of socialism from the Tower of Babel. And uh, all of that helps us understand that the message is so compelling, obviously he who sent the message is worthy of our faith. That's the uh, what I really bring to you. And the truth is that that is worth ever so much more than the um, than uh, the offer to buy your waterfront real estate. But if you insist, you know where to reach me. I am your rabbi, and I wish you a week of good health and prosperity, success and strong attachments to your faith, to your family, to your money, and to your friends. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.